0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Please stay standing, if you can, for the reading of the Word. This is from Revelation chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And verse 10 says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day and for your word. I pray that you would take the words of the preacher and make them alive. Um, May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you and edifying to your church, I pray. And all God's people said together, amen. You may be seated. So which is it? (laughs) I'll fly away. Or does heaven come here? I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but we have two competing ideologies. We sing about this idea, right? I'll fly away, you know, heaven, as if heaven is someplace elsewhere that we will one day go to. And yet, right here in the scriptures, and Jesus himself says it in his prayer, when you're gonna pray, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Like Jesus knows that somehow that the kingdom of God, heaven, is coming here. And then in Revelation 21, this vision that John has on this island where heaven comes down from God's dwelling and is here on this dwelling so which is it cuz it can't be both Do I have you? Okay friends, here we go. Now we're now we're now I got you. Today, welcome to Awaken if you're new. I'm glad that you're here. We're in week 2 of a series. Every fall, we spend some time on the things that we value and Uh, Like what kind of church we want to be, and so over here on my left and your right, there was a sign, and there were ten words, and that was sort of from the beginning of awaken. We we said we want to we want to state these things as valuable, and as we've come into this fall, we want to restate some things that we have stated previously, but we want to coalesce some things we've stated, and we want to add some things actually, because there's a way in which uh, the spirit of God is alive and at work in a community, and so it would seem that uh, a church that's alive and moving and breathing and saying yes to the new things that God might be saying to them might uh, be a good thing. And so we've sensed that God has invited us in some new ways that we hadn't heard before, but we're hearing now. So we're doing this series called Values and DNA. My good friend Katie is painting. She started last week. And you all didn't get to see because she only painted first hour. But we've brought her here for second hour for you guys. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah! So, great. Um, So, we're in week two, and last week we said that we value Jesus. That was the beginning of the series. Primary, first out of the gate, you know, like number one on the the list for a reason that we value Jesus. And this week, I want to say a little bit about the value of holism. H-O-L-I-S-M. It often gets spell checked, but it is a word, I will say. Uh, you may have heard the idea of a holistic understanding of something. That's what we're talking about. Holism is the value, it's the noun. Holistic is the adjective. And uh, it's probably the most obscure or the most ambiguous of our stated values. But I would actually suggest, whether you know it or not, I think it's a value that you have experienced and that you have sensed, felt. Uh, uh, like. Uh, well, I'll say it this way people have come to awaken and they say to me things like, Micah, we, we we came to this church and we love the way you do this or you do that or the way that you you know, you talk about the Bible or the way we we, we you know, gather and and but, but there's something about it that I just can't really put my finger on, you know?" And I've heard that so many times from so many different people. And I actually think that this value of a holistic understanding of spiritual life and faith is what's being played out in many ways and in many shapes and in many forms that maybe you've never been able to articulate or put your finger on, but I want to try to help you with that today. All right. So um, the way we're going to do it is we're going to talk first about what is holism. What is a holistic idea or, or, or how is one holistic? And then I want to move to uh, why is it important. And for that, Surgeon General's warning, friends, you're going to need your thinking caps today. So if you have left it in the car, you can go get it. And uh, we're going to do a little history because our history has informed our present in a lot of ways. And then I want to ask, like, what are the implications of a holistic approach to spiritual life and faith? Or what happens if a church or community or uh, tradition doesn't think about the gospel holistically? Um, What are the effects of an atomistic faith? That's the antonym of holism, by the way. You know, atoms is like the smallest part, it's the lowest common denominator, that's the antonym of holism, okay, so at least you've got a sense of what it could be now. So that's what we're going to do, what is holism, why is it important, and then what are the implications of it? Are you guys ready to rock and roll? All right, here we go. First and foremost, what is holism? I'll start with the definition, the noun, according to the dictionary, is a theory that the universe, and especially living nature, is correctly seen in terms of the interacting wholes that are more than the mere sum of elementary particles. So it's the opposite of atomistic. It's the opposite of the smallest common denominator. It's the opposite of reductionistic thinking. It's seeing the whole as an integrated system. The adjective is relating to or concerned with holes or with complete systems rather than the analysis of, treatment of, or dissection into parts. Let me say that one again. Holistic as an adjective is relating to or concerned with the holes or complete systems rather than the analysis or treatment or dissection of the parts. All right, are you tracking? I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself, but my training and, and my experience of Christianity had a lot to do with the analysis of, treatment of, and dissection of the parts of God. You know what I'm saying? It was called systematic theology in seminary where we break down the nature of the divine into nine neat categories that we then build our structure of knowledge upon. That seems like really... um. Modern and enlightenment thinking, and it can't be that easy we're talking about God. if you could do that, wouldn't you be God? Well yes, of course, right but honest to God honest honestly sorry honestly, I remember in seminary a PowerPoint where it was like all the doctrines of God and we build these and like this is our art this is like our cathedral of knowledge. My experience of Christianity and of evangelical The evangelical tradition from which I come was very much interested in the analysis of treatment of and dissection into parts, God. So as I mentioned earlier, the antonym of holism is atomism, which is the breaking down of something into smaller parts, the lowest common denominator, It's the dissection of something in order to find its most basic and elemental existence, which has its place in the world but it has certain outcomes and it has certain uh, products when you do that, especially when it relates to spiritual life and God. Holism, on the other hand, a holistic understanding of faith recognizes that all the parts are connected. That not only are they connected, but that they impact and influence one another. And that the health of one area of our lives impacts the health of another area of our life. That we are not just spiritual beings, but that we are cognitive and emotional and relational and physical and vocational and, right, that all of these parts of our self could be understood holistically as what God is up to and interested in in the spiritual life or in, well, see, I even did it right there. (laughs) Okay, some of you missed that. I'm not going to go back. Um, take trauma as an example, right? For a lot, for many people, uh, for a lot of years, we thought traumatic experiences and traumatic events had an impact on someone's emotional life, right? So we did particular therapies to address trauma. Science is now telling us and um, showing us that trauma actually has like a biological, a physical manifestation in someone's life. So not only does a traumatic event uh, influence someone's emotions, but it actually has a biological, physical, cellular impact. So that would be a more holistic understanding of trauma. That when someone experiences a traumatic event, it doesn't just address their their emotions or we shouldn't just address their emotions, but we should recognize that trauma might be passed on from generation to generation. And how does that change the events of someone's history when traumatic events have happened? Is it possible that that's actually been passed on on a cellular level from generation to generation to generation, right? That would be a holistic understanding of trauma versus an atomistic understanding of trauma. Are you all with me so far? Now you might be thinking, what does that have to do with spiritual things, Micah?" And this is where I need you to put your thinking caps on, and I'm going to try to articulate why this is so important. In order to understand this question, um, we're going to do a little history, we're going to do a little family history, and I'm assuming that most people in the room are from the Protestant wing of church Christian history, so if there's Protestant and Catholic, that most of the people in the room uh, 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 at least are familiar with the Protestant wing of Christianity. And then within that, there's a narrower slice of that called evangelicalism, right? That many of us know and understand, at least have a a, a working knowledge of. So we're going to do a little family history because that informs how many of us have been shaped and how we show up in the world and the people that we know, uh, uh, maybe that are coming to your Thanksgiving dinner in a couple weeks, okay? Okay, here we go. The first... uh, First and foremost, let's talk about sacred and secular. Many Christians have this unique ability to divide the world into two categories, sacred and secular. Um, Spiritual and physical, sacred and secular. In fact, there's an entire music industry based on this distinction. It's called CCM, the Contemporary Christian Music Movement, right? It's based upon the premise that the world can be divided into that which is sacred, and that which is secular, which is why so many Christians didn't know what to do with you too. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because they're like, sure as hell, we're not part of this, you know, we're not part of this CCM thing, but they talked about God, and Bono even, like, professes to be somewhat of a Christian, but what do we know? You know, like, people just couldn't, they couldn't figure out what category to put them in, because it's either sacred or secular. You have Christian music, and then you have secular music. You have Christian bands, and then you have secular bands. And I don't listen to secular bands because I'm a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're gonna. Kids in youth group, you know, they'd come to youth group, they're like, I'm gonna burn all my secular CDs, you know, and they'd like smash them and crush them. Some of you maybe did that. That's based on the premise that the world can be divided into the categories of sacred and secular, spiritual and physical. Are you tracking? Now, not only is there this divide that happens for many of us in the spiritual Christian spiritual world where sacred and secular get divided, but a certain version of the gospel often follows then. There is often a privileging of s- sacred and spiritual things at the expense of secular and physical things to the point that the gospel becomes a sort of evacuation strategy for the spiritual things, the souls in the room, from the physical things, the earth and all the bad things in it, right? So the gospel gets reduced to how do we get out of here so that we can take our souls which matter more to that place which isn't there? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, The Bible and the Christian story get reduced to a private transaction for persons, that's quite simply only concerned with where your soul will spend eternity. Now, it's not that I'm saying that that's not important. It is. That's a part of your life. That's a part of you, your personhood, your soul. It's what makes you unique in some ways from the animals that wander around the world. But it's not the only thing that matters. But in this sacred-secular divide, which many of us can relate to or maybe grew up in, sacred and spiritual is privileged, And then the gospel, the good news about God and Jesus becomes sort of this reductionary version or this this answer to the question, what happens to my soul after I die? When that happens, life becomes a waiting room, right? Like if the point is souls matter most and the world is physical and it doesn't matter as much, then what we're doing now, life, is just a waiting room until we get to fly away someday, where we sit in the waiting room and we read CCM magazines, <laughs> right? Now, I, you all laugh and I'm joking and I'm painting this a bit, you know, comically, but have you run into these folks? I, I, I was one for the better part of my adult life. Um, the question I want to pose this morning is how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the place where it's normative to think that Souls matter most, and that the gospel is about what happens to my soul after I die. That the think about this, that the God who created the world enters into time and space and history in the person of Jesus the Christ, and his only concern is personal souls. Salvation? Like that's it? Like, man, that's a lot of work. There's there's a lot of things that got missed. You know, like the trout. The honeycrisp apple? I mean, can you imagine the kingdom without the honeycrisp? That's insanity, right? There's no way. What, the trees, uh, uh, ev- everything that God made good. According to Genesis 1, right, if you go all the way back to the beginning, there isn't anything in the world that isn't created by God and called good. Like an, an outflow of the divine and blessed and celebrated. But then when Jesus shows up in history, all he cares about is my disembodied soul. Do you see how crazy that sounds? How did we get here? This is our history lesson. Three people, three things. John Darby, William Riley, Northwestern College. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Schnicker! I will tie this all together, and I have no ill will towards Northwestern College, but it is a part of the story, so stick with me. John Darby, 1800s, he lives in Europe, he is a pastor in the Brethren Church, and uh, uh, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about a lot of things, but one of its primary concerns is when is Jesus coming back, right? People have thought about this question. The disciples were asking, "When is when? When will the kingdom come?" That's a different way of asking the same question. So, Revelation, the book of Revelation, speaks to this question of like, when is Jesus coming back? And for. Um, There's a lot of different answers if you go back in church history to that question, but the time that we're looking at in the 1800s, in Europe, when this guy John Darby was around, the most common answer to that question was called a post-millennial kingdom. Here's what I mean by that. Most Christians believed that the work, of be, uh, uh, the work of a person of faith is to show up in the world in an engaged fashion and to be working for justice and for, uh, for the oppressed and the marginalized and the people who were, who were not at the table who should be at the table. And so Christians were like civic. They were involved in civic life and they were working for reform in all kinds of different ways. And the thought was that as they did that and they brought their lives of faith to bear, that the world would, would they would usher in the kingdom of God. And then there would be this thousand-year reign of peace where love is the norm and the kingdom of God is present, and then Jesus would return and sort of wrap up history and begin the next epic of history, the kingdom of God, as normal. Right? That's called post-millennial theology, where people believe Jesus would come back after this thousand-year reign. This is normative. This is normal in Christian history, and in, and in the 1800s, this is how most people would answer the question. Insert John Darby. He falls off his horse... Literally, he's laid up in bed for like three months and he has nothing to do but read the Bible. So he starts reading the Bible and he, with a couple of verses from Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, and 1 Peter, he develops this whole new reading of the text, which is the exact opposite of what people were saying to answer the question when will Jesus come back? Here's how it works. He says that essentially it will get so bad on earth that like human and moral decay will be so depraved that... A cataclysmic event will happen, 2 Thessalonians 5, called the rapture, and the Christians will be taken, meet Jesus in the air, and taken from the earth. Those who are left on the earth will experience a seven-year tribulation period, and at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, there will be this giant battle called Armageddon where Jesus and the angels come back and they fight Satan and the, and the demons, and evil and the devil will be vanquished and beaten forever, and then the thousand-year reign of Christ will begin, Okay? If you've ever read the Left Behind books, this is it. I read them all, every single one of them, and I taught them to junior hires. May God have mercy on their souls. He flips the whole thing and he basically says, when will Jesus come back? It'll be after the rapture, it'll be after Armageddon, it'll be Jesus comes back and then the thousand year reign of Christ. So essentially, like the world will get so bad and then Christians will be evacuated, raptured, and, right, you all, you're, you're with me? You know, you know what I'm talking about here. Okay, Darby starts preaching this and teaching this in Europe. And it's, in a, and Europe is going downhill quickly, right? At this point in history, it's bad news bears all around, and so people are like, yeah, that actually is a really good explanation of what's happening, and then our hope is that it gets bad enough that Jesus comes back. So people start buying this stuff like it's going out of style. They're, they're eating it up. So Darby like a good, you know, uh, evangelist is like, let's take the show on the road. So he comes to America and he starts preaching this rapture premillennial theology to Americans in like the mid-1800s. The problem is, America is not quite at a steep decline yet. This is pre-Civil War, things are up and to the right, we're in the middle of an industrial revolution, a scientific revolution, reason and the Enlightenment project, and it's like, we're, it's actually a pretty progressive uh, response to this thing of how does humanity like, interact with the world. So we're all in and we're kind of like, that. that's like doom and gloom, bad news bears, not interested. Then the Civil War happens, most denominations end up splitting over the issue of slavery, the Titanic sinks in 1912, and the Enlightenment project, like, that's the best we can engineer and it's at the bottom of an ocean, right? World War I breaks out in 1914 and people start thinking, huh, maybe it is going to hell in a handbasket, quite literally. And so the seeds of this radical evangelicalism is what they called it, the seeds of this fundamental sort of dispensational theology are planted by Darby and at this point in time and insert William Riley. William Riley in 1897 becomes the pastor at First Baptist Church of guess where? Minneapolis. Do you know where the First Baptist Church is? It's right down the street from First Avenue, ironically, these two iconic buildings in Twin Cities history. William Riley becomes the pastor at First Baptist Church in Minneapolis. He starts preaching this fundamentalist, dispensational, rapture theology, and Minnesotans are buying it like it's going out of style, like hotcakes. We're heated up, the church grows massively, and in America, in American, like Christianity, this thing is getting ahead of steam. To the degree that the Christians are thinking essentially this. There's a whole liberal wing of Christianity that's missing the point. They are, they're sort of Uh, And and we, the radical evangelicals, need to hold on to, to protect and preserve the fundamentals of the faith. So William B. Riley was known as the grand old man of fundamentalism. So what do you do when you have this this population of people who are not seeing the things of God and, and, and they're training their children in such ways? What do you do? You start universities. 1902, William B. Riley, the grand old man of fundamentalism, starts Northwestern College Northwestern Bible Training School. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, Micah, I had a lot of fun researching all this this week, as you can tell, and I don't know if you think it's as cool as I do. But what's the point? When the story of God in the Bible gets reduced to Jesus' death and resurrection is to ensure the saving of individual souls to a disembodied place after we die we have missed a lot of the story. And what happens when you reduce the story to that, it produces a certain kind of person who shows up in a particular way in the world. And I want to argue that an atomistic, a reductionistic understanding of the gospel actually can be really harmful because when those people show up in the world in certain ways, it might not be good news to the people who haven't heard it yet. If you're on the underside of oppression, if you have the boot of the empire on your neck and a a Christian who shows up, who, who really believes the whole story is about disembodied souls and says nothing to your actual suffering, that's not good news. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think that our understanding of the gospel, and I want to argue a holistic understanding of the gospel that includes all of God's good creation, really, really matters. Here are three ways I have seen it show up. I think maybe you might agree with me or resonate with some of the things I'm about to say. And I'm just going to argue that this church, as long as I'm the pastor, we want to say we value a holistic understanding of the gospel because when it gets reduced to this small little thing where Jesus saves souls, that it's not good news for very many people. So, as I close, three implications of an atomistic gospel Versus a holistic gospel. The first of which is we can remain disengaged with politics and the policies of politics because we believe we're going to fly away someday, right? If we, if we understand the gospel in this reductionistic way, this atomistic way, where Jesus is only concerned about my soul after I die, then the policies and procedures of the politics and the politicians that we live with every day, our civil life, really doesn't matter, Right, We're in the waiting room, we're hoping and waiting for some day later when God will make everything right. But if the gospel is actually about this life and the kingdom of God will come to a physical material place like here and now and our bodies actually matter and our world actually matters, then the politics and the policies matter, do you know what I'm saying? So when we don't understand the gospel holistically, we can disengage as Christians and have our head in the sand and pretend like suffering doesn't matter or doesn't exist. That's not good news. That's not good news for the people who are suffering. Often, we can become like one or two issue voters on one or two issues that only matter to me and my understanding of the gospel and souls while we remain completely oblivious to policies and procedures that are real for people in the world. So my challenge to you all is don't be disengaged. I reject the premise and the idea that we will fly away someday to a heaven that's disembodied, that has nothing to do with our physical world and our actual bodies. Why do we think that God will do for us anything different than God did for Jesus at Easter? If the point of the Christian story, the pinnacle, the high point, like the hallelujah moment, is the resurrected body of Jesus the Christ, touch me, I'm real, why do we think that it's any different for us? The hope of the Christian story is not some pie in the sky, heaven after we die, it's resurrection, people. It's like real physical bodies living in the kingdom of God where love is the norm and peace and justice flow like a river down the street, you know what I'm saying? People, I don't know if you're excited about this or not, but that's good news. So, that's that, that version, that understanding of the story, that holistic version of the gospel, it speaks to everything. It speaks to even your politics and the policies and the people we put in office. So, as Americans who live in democracy, get out and vote. Use your voice. I'm not telling you what to do or how to vote. That's your Work that out in your own formation. But like... When we believe the gospel is only about souls after we die, why would we? Why bother, right? That's not good news at all, in my opinion. Secondly, I think we can then exploit and sort of scorch the earth because we're just strangers passing through. (laughs) This isn't funny, but I don't know how to respond in any other way. I can't tell you the number of Christians that I speak to who, who, who are just completely disinterested in a conversation about the planet we live on. Like the rivers and the trout and, and the trees and the birds and the bees. Do you guys know how important bees are? For pollinating, like help out your pollinator friends, like you got to give them room for them to do their thing or we don't get lots of things including honey. <laughs> the ecosystems on this planet that are just disintegrating in front of our very eyes and the rainforests and the, the uh, like, and, and Christians, people of faith who are like, doesn't matter, it's all going to burn anyways. No it's not. That's a really bad theology and an inaccurate one according to the Bible. So don't be disengaged. A holistic understanding of the gospel says all of God's creation called good, God wants back, not just your soul. You're not that important. You're important, but not that important. The gospel is about all of it, even the bees, even the trees. Even the dahlia flowers. Like, name something. It's included. So as a person of faith who understands that the gospel, the good news of God in Christ, is about all of creation and all of the systems and all, because it's all connected, right? The health of one impacts the health of another. So you can't just, you can't just like take care of mine and and our own at at the expense of everything else. That's that's just sinful. I'll say that. I'll say that out loud. Twice. That's sinful. Third, and, I'll, and this will be the last one. When we don't understand the gospel holistically, we can often end up with a poor and or a warped theology of our bodies and of sex. Can I go here for just a second? When we don't value a holistic gospel... And souls matter more than bodies. Or even worse, bodies are the root of the problem. It's no wonder we hate our own bodies. It's no wonder we have so many people walking around the planet hating the body that they live in. Where does that come from? Souls matter more. So our bodies become the enemy. Our bodies become this carcass that we sort of have to inhabit for a time until we get out of them. That is just antithetical to the gospel. That's antithetical to the Bible. And it's no wonder that we have such warped theologies around sex when we can't even talk about it because the body is the devil. The body is the problem. It's the root of the problem. No, it is not. Is it possible that your body, your sensual feeling, like, This, skin and bones, material, Madonna got it right. I'm a material girl living in a material world. Is it possible that your body and sex are good, like gifts from God? And when properly ordered, which is just the opposite of sin, when properly ordered are actually really, really, really great. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen on that one? So I think when we reduce the gospel to this thing where only souls matter, one of the effects of that is we just tell kids don't and no all the time. And you know that prohibition creates desire, don't you? Parents, just pay attention to this one. This is free, okay? When we just prohibit and say no for no good reason, it's likely our kids are going to do one of two things, feast or famine. And that is, isn't that kind of like what we experience in like Christian subculture around our bodies? It's either feast or famine. And I think there's a healthier way to do it. I think that that's an implication. I think that's a byproduct of a reduced gospel. But what if we saw it bigger? What if the work of God in Christ included all the things, all the good things that God has made and called good? I think we would have a different understanding or a different relationship to our own bodies. And I, for one, think that would be wonderful. At Awaken, we value holism and we want to be a holistic community because we believe that the work of God in Christ impacts every single square inch of the cosmos. So I don't affirm that souls matter more than bodies. I don't affirm that we will fly away someday. Like, we sang that song, it was a setup. It's called a sucker punch. (laughs) And, and, and I listen uh, uh. every system be it sociological biological political is subject to the claim of the lordship of Christ everything that's what it means when Jesus says when the New Testament writers say Jesus is Lord that's what they mean that there isn't a square inch underneath the, the, the divine that is not like available to be gathered in and claimed as good and God's. That's the kingdom. That's heaven. And the Bible, and Jesus, when he tells us to pray, seem to make clear that that reality is coming here, not the other way around. So as fun as it is to sing those old songs, I would just invite you to think about, like, where does where does that theology come from? And is that maybe the most helpful? Ah, so I'll fly away, or eh, maybe not. A holistic gospel, I believe, is good news to the world, and I invite you all to embody it, to live it out as a community, to go from this place into your places of work and your civic life and your social life and your political life and your family life and your institutional life and your banking life and your land use life and your everything, informed and influenced by the the resurrected reality of Jesus the Christ. That death does not win, that evil does not get the last word, that hope and justice will be our norm and will be the reality and love will reign once and for all. Let's, let's work towards that. And guess what will be there? Your body, the bees, the butterflies, everything. It's going to be so cool. I can't wait to see how God does it. I'm done. Um... Mel, I think, uh, okay, here, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a few moments to think about what I've said. You can disagree with me. This is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. And then we'll invite you to sing one more song, which declares that, in fact, all of God's works are good. So if you think that might be true, I would invite you to maybe sing this one with with some, some vigor, with some maybe newly informed passion, Yes, that's true. All oh, your works are good. Raise a hand if you want. Dance in the aisles if you want. I know, I'm going to get a little carried away. Let me pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for these bodies. Thanks for these souls. Thanks for this building and the people who built it. Thanks for the trees and the, the leaves. Thanks for the light, for the birds that sing. Thanks for the rivers and the streams and the mountains. Thanks for the coral reefs and the fish. Thanks for the elephant. Thanks for the way in which you made and created and called good. And for those who follow this resurrected Jesus who somehow beats death, comes up on the other side of it in new life, uh, may we be people of the resurrection. That it happened, but then that it's happening here and now. So may it it be found alive and true in us in the way we live our lives, the way we vote, the way we show up to our work, the way we sing and engage music and art. Um, So Holy Spirit, in the next moment or two of silence, just move and speak and um, invite us to what might be next for us, I pray. find us online at www.awakencommunity.com, or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Community or on Twitter at awaken Community. See you okay. next time.